Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Noah Schusterman, the author of The French Revolution, Faith, Desire, and Politics, and the book was published by Routledge in 2014. Hi there, Noah. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of this podcast and of the New Books Network. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, I wonder if you could get us started, Noah, by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France. Sure. Uh, I think there's really two answers to that. Uh, The first is that when I was growing up, France just had a sort of relevancy that I I think it's lost some of. Um, Things French were always, always seemed to be around. I had family that had moved to France and um, things like that. And in seventh grade, I was given the choice between French, Spanish, or Latin. And French seemed the most natural. It even kind of seemed the most useful. I mean, I'm sure, if I was growing up in Los Angeles or New Mexico, I would have probably not thought that. But um, it just seemed like the logical way to go. Um, and then by the time I was finished college, uh, at that point, I'd been taking French off and on for 10 years. And um, decided it was time to finally actually know how to speak it and was had enough money saved up and enough few enough uh, career possibilities that it made sense for me to take what amounted to a fifth year abroad and uh, spend some time in France taking courses actually learning the language and um, and really became enchanted with Paris uh, and France but mostly Paris uh, in a way that's never that still never left me uh, that said, uh, when it came time to, you know, to decide what I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, for me, uh, the decision was to become a historian. Um, and I, the first two books, obviously, have been the history of France, and I love studying France. But um, if it hadn't been the history of France, uh, it would have been the history of the United States or medieval history or, or another field of history. As opposed, I, I never pondered doing French literature or French film or French philosophy or anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. And what drew you to the French Revolution in particular? Well, there is certainly a, any major event like that tends to act as, I don't know, a, a vacuum, a magnet. I mean, it attracts attention. Um, there's 
there's such a huge number of interesting things that have already been written about it. And you want to know what other historians have said, and you get caught up in those debates. And you get caught up in the drama of the event. And I think that could have happened at any time, just the, the sheer excitement of it all. But the time, you know, is early 90s, mid 90s when I was choosing what I wanted to focus in on. And in around the time of the bicentennial, so around the time of 1989, there had been a huge amount of intellectual energy activity going into French Revolution studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, people, you know, at the time I finished graduate school, people were still sort of piecing their way through all of that. So uh, there was, it, it was an, the early part of my graduate career was a very exciting time to be studying the French Revolution. You know, I maybe missed the highlight of being a grad student during the bicentennial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, um, you know, intellectual activity like that, it often takes a few years to really figure out what it all meant, where it's mm-hmm. all leading. And, and early on in my graduate career, I mean, that was, that was again, it was an exciting, it was an exciting time to be studying it. It was an exciting group of questions to be, uh, to be pondering. Um, you know, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you about this book, Noah, is that more than any other book I've discussed so far in this in this podcast series, yours really raises questions and issues about teaching and learning about France and its history. So I guess I'd like to hear you say something about how you think this book might be used to teach students about the French Revolution. Sure. Uh, and I, I've very much kept that in mind as as I was writing the book, as I was thinking about the book. I was doing a, a tremendous amount of teaching at the time that uh, that I was writing this and that I was thinking about this. And, and I really did think a lot about uh, what works with the students that I'm seeing uh, and what doesn't work. And, you know, partly that's a question of what students like, and but it's also always a question of the compromises between what students like and what professors want to teach. Mm-hmm. And um, And so I wanted to have a book that was interesting enough to give students something, some things to grab onto in their mind. Um, uh, events that are memorable, characters that are memorable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to be able to reach students who wouldn't necessarily be caught up in, say, um, William Doyle's much longer history of the French Revolution, which mm-hmm. is, you know, has much, far more details in it than mine does. And a truly dedicated student of the French Revolution could learn a lot more reading that book than my book, simply because his book has a lot more facts in it. Um, But not all the students that we're dealing with are that dedicated um, or that detail-oriented. One way to think about this is that most textbooks you come across have a pretty consistent detail-to-pages ratio meaning that the longer the book is, the more details it's going to have in it. Mm. Um, but the um, but per page, you're going to have the same density of detail. And I tried to move away from that a little bit. Um, it's a sort of strange thing to say, but I, I one thing that I heard from students a lot is, you know, teach us, like, for say, for the modern European history survey course. Um, the students would write that um, in the feedback, uh, they wanted to learn about fewer events and learn more about those events. Mm-hmm. And so something like, um, just to bring up a specific, the, the events of August 10th, 1792. Uh, this is a crucial turning point in the revolution. Now, you can get the essential details in a couple pages, and that would free up more pages uh, to talk about any number of other events of the revolution. Um, but my 
Um, my approach was to, no, let, let that event, and some other events as well, let that event play out, uh, even if it means uh, talking less about, about the external war, talking less about what was going on in some of the provinces at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, talking less about, you know, not without regret, I think every author, part of them, wants to write a longer book where they say everything they know. Uh, <laughs> but when it came time to pick and choose, um, to really let the let the student, you know, let the some of the events come to life uh, in memorable ways. Let some of the characters come to life in memorable ways. Um, so that's uh, that says uh, something about my approach as a writer. I think now I I think like everybody who's written a, a history of an event in a what's in in any way a textbook fashion it's it's supposed to be a gateway i don't think anybody's going to be taking a, a teaching or taking a course on my book they're going to be taking a course that deals with the french revolution mm-hmm. um and so obviously you know i would anticipate the discussions being about the primarily about the events themselves and out, aside from a graduate seminar not about my interpretation of them um but again, I, I, I'll stick with what I said before. I think that making the events memorable, making the characters memorable, the historical actors, I guess is the more accurate term, uh, really does, it, my experience is that that really did help when it came time to have um, course discussions to see what students were picking up on. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wonder too, you know, you've done other kinds of writing, you've written another book, directed at a, at a different audience, perhaps more an audience of maybe graduate students and scholars. Um, so what was that like for you as a researcher and a writer? How did, how did that process feel different? And was it, you know, liberating? Were there challenges not being able to kind of delve into scholarly debates in the same way? What, what was that like for you as an experience this, this time around? Intellectually, one of the difficult things... But ultimately, I guess I would say one of the liberating things was how do I make my interpretation of the French Revolution, my arguments about the French Revolution, come through in ways that that non-specialists, you know, undergraduates, general readers, uh, can understand what I'm saying, but that specialists will be able to see how they fit in with the larger field. Mm-hmm. And in that, I, I was guided a lot by by other reading I've done that was not by academics. Um, hmm. It's it's just a strange book, I'm sure, to to hear referenced in my discussion about the history of the French Revolution. But um, the book by Bissinger, Friday Night Lights, hmm. um, which is about nothing to do with any of this. It's about high school football in Texas in the late 80s and um, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he does just this masterful job of talking about things that are of importance to social scientists, um, the relationship between economics and entertainment, the um, relationships between politics and race and, uh, and athletics um, without hitting you over the head with his argument. Um, and without, I mean, in his case, really without tying up the loose ends of an argument the way he would have had to do if he was an academic. Um, and uh, there's other books I've read like that. That that was the first one I'd read that really did that. And and I read it, and I thought, you know what? Th- this book is saying things that are of importance to social scientists in a way that everyday readers, non-academic readers, are going to pick up on. Mm-hmm. Now, just as a quick note, the TV show doesn't do that <laughs> for the two times. So, I, but um, but the book does it. And I always, you know, I read that, and he, he's got training as a writer. I don't have 
have, I don't know to what extent I, I succeeded at this, but I wanted to be able to talk about, uh, you know, the relationship between religion and gender and, and politics, the, the way that changes in politics can affect changes in relationships between women and men. But if I'd introduced it, if I had introduced it like that, you know, this is a book about the way that political transformations can affect gender dynamics. A, a lot of the people I'm trying to read are just going to close the book. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, that, that's the challenge. Uh, and I'm, I'm very curious to see uh, from reactions um, how well I did succeed at it. Well, so as you just raised, Noah, the book emphasizes these key themes at the same time that it's giving readers this you know, rich overview of, of the French Revolution and an exciting narrative. And so in, in the title of the book, you have the, the sort of major themes um, laid out and, and um, the idea of faith and desire and politics and the connections between those things. And you say in the introduction to the book that, um, and I'm quoting you here, religion and gender were key to how the revolution unfolded. And this is, you know, your approach or what you're interested in highlighting about the French Revolution. And I just wonder if you could say a few words about about that approach and um, and how it departs from or complements the work that scholars have have done before on the French Revolution. There are two ways of, of looking at this. Uh, one is that there were religious interpretations, uh, gendered interpretations of the events that were unfolding throughout the course of the revolution, as there had been before, as there would be after. Um, things that we would not think of as having religious undertones. For it did very much um, at the times they were going on. Um, there were ways that people made the revolution into either a source of a new religion, or people made re- um, the revolution into some, you know, transformed it, um, portrayed it as something as an enemy to religion. Um, uh, there were ways that the revolution affected relations between women and men. Um, the revolutionaries were portrayed in gendered ways, um, again, that, it, that were going on before the revolution, but they were very much heightened during the revolution. Um, certainly portrayals of Marie Antoinette come to mind there. Mm-hmm. So that's going on from the, from the beginning of the revolution, from before the revolution throughout. Uh, but there is a central narrative that I try to uh, talk about with the um, with the civil constitution of the clergy, which is a law passed in 1790, uh, and really the the enactment is really uh, late 1790, early 1791. And this was a law that uh, attempted to reform, well, did reform the Catholic Church in France. Now, uh, just as a background, as recap, um, the revolution had started in the spring summer of 1789. Mm-hmm. And for what it accomplished during its first year, uh, it would it had gone very smoothly. Now, that's not to say there were no problems, but uh, the uh, what would you say the ratio of transformation to uh, to trauma was extremely high at this point. Mm. There were major cha- you know major changes in the kingdom uh, with with relatively little uh, upheaval, uh, relatively little unwanted upheaval, relatively little in the way of armed violence things like that. Uh, the revolution's attempt to, uh, the National Assembly's law uh, passed in 1790 um, and uh, coming really coming into effect in November of 1790, January of 1791, that, um, that reshaped the, the Catholic Church in France uh, was really a turning point uh, in terms of the relationship between the revolution and the population. 
because for the first time, you really had a large portion of the nation, what was then the kingdom, uh, that was now in opposition to the revolution. Uh, the revolutionaries had declared a, a new form for the Catholic Church in France. Uh, many people, um, both uh, clerics within the Catholic Church and uh, people who considered themselves to be members, supporters of the Catholic Church, and, and if you consider yourself a member to support it to be Catholic Church, you pretty much are, mm-hmm. um, were now openly expressing opposition to the revolution uh, in a way that they hadn't. And uh, the counter-revolution, you know, in... 1789 and early 1790, really, uh, for all the fear that the revolutionaries have of it, is kind of a laughable, uh, you know, a bunch of aristocrats on the other side of the border rattling their swords and effectually uh, at the at the revolution. But now you have large sections of the population that are hostile to the revolution uh, that will become increasingly hostile to the revolution along the lines that are set up in. Uh, in the response to the seventeen to seventeen ninety um, to the seventeen ninety law, and this was done in ways that uh, revolutionaries at the time and historians today understood as very uh, very much along gendered lines uh, and in very much a gendered way. Women often were leaders in the opposition to the civil constitution of the clergy, um, and uh, revolutionaries were very conscious of very frequently mentioned the key roles that women had, that women were playing in this opposition. You know, they would mention it as a way of belittling the opposition. Um, but the Catholics, um, the what's known as the refractory Catholics, uh, those who opposed the civil constitution of the clergy, were also very, um, they didn't hide that they were, had a lot of support of women. You know, what was looked at as credulity or over-emotionalness um, or superstition on the part of the revolutions for, for these women who were supporting the Catholic, the refractory Catholic Church uh, is, you know, the, those on the other side are, are calling it piety um, and faithfulness. Uh, and this is a dynamic that really, uh, from the time it begins, really is a, one of the key dynamics of the, of the revolution, one of the things that pushes it towards radicalization, one of the things that pushes it uh, towards civil war in Western France. And it's, it's what I wanted to highlight uh, mm-hmm. in the way I uh, portrayed the revolution. Well, I just want to take us back, uh, Noah, to the sort of early chapters of the book for a second, um, where you, you know, the first chapter of the book, you give us this overview of what life was like before the French Revolution. And as you just said, you know, the, the revolution starts in 1789, but you do have this kind of uh, panorama of old regime society, and um, you provide readers with this understanding of, of life on the eve of the revolution. And that, of course, raises the question of causes. And I'm just wondering, you know, what the main things are that you hope students and other readers might take away from this picture of everyday life in the old regime, and also where the revolution comes from, what its causes are? Well, one of the pet peeves I have with many histories of the French Revolution, not all, but many, is that they just spend too long getting to the action. Um, and one of my one of my goals in writing this, and this isn't why I started to write this book, but once I knew I wanted to write this, I kept thinking, like, get to the best deal, get to the best deal. That's when the action starts. That's when you want to have things, you know, that's where you want to spend the bulk of your time. Um, so I had a lot more to say about what was going on in the old regime, but I really wanted to get through it quickly. Now, I did want to talk about how crucial it was that um, that you understand the role of the Catholic Church and the role of religious uh, life and the role of what you could say um, 
what used to be religious life in shaping uh, the world in which people lived. Um, uh, Sundays, religious holidays, births, marriages, funerals, uh, these were things that shaped life, that shaped the rhythms of people's lives. And uh, they were all rhythms that had religious background, even by the late 18th century when fewer people were going to church regularly when fewer people were part of a congregation, uh, you still have this background of a, of a life that had been very much shaped by the religion of earlier generations. And I don't think you can understand uh, either the old regime France or the, the events of the revolution without, without understanding that culture. Um, so I did have to have a chapter about it in the book to, for the later events to, to make any sense. Now, Having said that, while those understandings of the world, those um, rhythms of life, those meanings, those beliefs, those all um, helped shape the events of the revolution, I don't count them as causes of the revolution, um, nor do I count the laicization movement of the 18th century as a particularly strong cause of the revolution. Uh, I think that the causes of the, the origins of the revolution really are one story and the events of the revolution are another. The old regime falls, um, and the revolution begins. And the old regime falls because it runs out of money. It, the, the old regime had a very ineff- inefficient excuse me, uh, taxation system uh, and high expenses, and that's not a good combination. And the French king is an absolute monarch, meaning that he has very few um, official limits to his power, many practical limits to his power but very few official limits to his power. But one of the few that he did have was that for any increase in taxation, he had to have the approval of a law court, which is confusingly called the parliament, um, although it was, a, it was a law court and not a legislative body. And the parliament just eventually, by the 1780s, refuses to approve the new taxes if he won't call uh, the estates general, which is a parliament, which is, you know, something of a legislative body. And they get to the, you know, Louis XVI does everything he can to try to avoid calling it, but finally he kind of cries uncle and agrees to call it uh, so that he can increase taxation. Um, and this is, this is what really sets things in motion uh, for the revolution to begin. Once the Estates General starts meeting, people have enough issues, enough complaints, uh, enough desires for transformation, uh, that they start, bringing, they start bringing up questions that eventually can't be resolved within the context of the constitutional monarchy that they're trying to set up in 1789 and 1790. Um, I wonder, Noah, you know, you've got, you begin the book with the, the old regime, which is a, a fairly straightforward way to do things. And, uh, and I'm going to come back to, to where the book ends later. But, you know, when I look at the table of contents, it starts with the old regime and then moves to the spring of 1789. And then you talk about the civil constitution of the clergy, the king's flight and the decline of the monarchy, the end of the monarchy, the new republic, the federalist revolt, the reign of terror. At some level, one could look at that mapping of the revolution and say, you're just following the events, right? But we know that there are all kinds of debates about how we follow the events and uh, where uh, the narrative goes and how you characterize different stages, how any author or scholar of the French Revolution characterizes different stages of the revolution or even dividing up the revolution into stages, deciding when to start, when to end things. And I just wonder um, what you might have to say about 
the possible interpretations of that are there in your narrative as you followed the events and you know what sort of politics to the revolution uh, to your understanding of the revolution might be reflected in the way that you've told this story in the book sure um I keep thinking, I read a history of Eastern Europe once, which was written backwards. Like each chapter was hmm. in chronological order, but then the, the chapters were all written, were all placed in the in backwards order. And uh, I had no desire to start anything like that. Yeah, mine, <laughs> is, a trend, mine is a chronologically ordered history of the revolution. Um, that That's certainly true. Now, I, I think my... Every interpretation differs. Mine certainly differs from a lot of others in a lot of other textbooks that are, certainly recent textbooks in the emphasis I give on the religious history of the revolution, in the emphasis that I give on the way that uh, gender played a key role in how the revolution unfolded. Uh, I don't think that the elements of my interpretation are going to be that new among scholars. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of books out there that I rely upon quite heavily, uh, of which scholars are well aware of. Uh, one being um, the 19th century history by Jules Michelet, um, but others being um, uh, work by Susan Dezan, work by uh, Nigel Aston, um, who have been telling specialists um, about the, the key role of religion, the key interactions between religion and gender. Um, but those are, I mean, those are some excellent books. Um, they're books, but but not ones that are aimed at general readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think they would endorse all of my interpretations by any means. But I, I, I do want to give give them, you know, credit for having, you know, shown ways of understanding these events through the through the prism of, of religion and gender. Uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, well, you asked about how my politics impact this, and I think that's always a difficult question. Uh, for a scholar to answer. Um, certainly my politics affected my interpretation of the revolution uh, in ways that I'm not going to be aware of for a few years and sure will someday realize. But I did want to make it clear that these are the relationship between uh, religion and political life, the relationship between um, a, a any culture where you have men leading political life and women and men together being subject to the laws that they write, uh, these are going to be situations that are rife for conflict, rife Mm -hmm. for difficulty, um, and that uh, there are advantages and dangers to religious freedom that any society is going to have to figure its way through, um, and that there are dangers to the overly aggressive implementation of any unpopular law, uh, no matter how valid that law might be. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is something that uh, that you can see with hindsight in the French Revolution. The, uh, the law, the civil constitution of the clergy, when you read the law, I don't consider it a radical law in many ways, but the revolution lost a lot more than it gained by insisting on its enforcement. I want to come back to something you said uh, a few moments ago. You mentioned Michelet, and throughout the book, you draw on histories and interpretations of the French Revolution from a variety of scholars, but you do place a special emphasis on returning to some of the classic readings of the 19th century, and you say that these accounts you know, receive less attention than they deserve, and, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. 
Well, I, I love the old histories of the revolution. Um, and anybody who writes a book like this is going to worry that they didn't, and rightfully so, that they didn't read enough texts. But, <laughs> um, but if I could go back and read more texts, it would be more of the 19th century text, not more of the 20th or 21st century text. Um, or certainly more of the 19th and early 20th century texts. Michelet, Jaurès, uh, Thiers, uh, Pierre de la Gourse, who is a Catholic historian, who often is, you know, sort of often um, had geographical land, but as uh, just a wealth of details about the religious history of the revolution that you, you don't find in other national histories of the revolution. Uh, and I, I'm always amazed how much I can learn from uh, from those texts. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've ever read a book about the French Revolution and not learned something. Um, every, not learned something that I was glad to, to learn. But, but the 19th century histories are ones that, that really, I think, have an understanding of events that is often lacking from more recent histories. Um, now, they're long. This is one of the almost universal characteristics of the early histories of the revolution. They're long. So, I mean, you asked about teaching before. You can't just tell students in an undergraduate seminar on European history that for the French Revolution they're going to be reading an a eight-volume history for the, <laughs> the 1840s. Um, so uh, they're, they're not that great for classroom use, which is why I think there is a place for a book like mine that, that brings some of their interpretations into a, a more modern uh, modern length. Um, but they have um, they have an understanding of what people are going through that I think we've lost. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there's a very basic mathematical thing, which is that the later you study an event, the more there is to read on it, you know, assuming that things aren't actually getting lost, that you're not doing, you know, ancient texts that are deteriorating. Um, and so something has to give. You can't be reading all you know, as many primary texts and as many classic histories and as many new accounts um, the later you go. Something's going to have to give. And most historians writing today will rightly try to keep up on the latest scholarship and still remain very grounded in the primary texts. And it makes sense. You know, it, it, there's... And certainly that was my approach in my first book. Uh, but the deeper I delved into the 19th century stuff, the more I felt I'm learning more here than I am in the recent texts. And uh, and sometimes when you stick too close to to the historiography, um, to recent historiography, you, you wind up with these um, debates that are are going on that I think are too divorced from the events themselves. You know, his, the it, any historiographical debate is going to take on its own dynamic, but sometimes that dynamic is so removed from the events that that it becomes uh, almost irrelevant. Uh, and finally, um, just to bring this back to the issue of uh, the importance of gender in the French Revolution, a lot of these early revolutionary histories uh, are very keyed in on that uh, mm. in ways that you need to... Uh, be careful with. Um, uh, it comes out as, th- there's a real irony, um, and this is something that I talked about in, a, in an article I wrote about, uh, specifically about Robespierre. Uh, there's a real irony in that uh, recent histories of women in the French Revolution have tended to emphasize the ways that women were excluded from the revolution, which is an interpretation that I'm not at all sympathetic to. But in the early histories, there is this consistent 
complaint uh, from men about how big a role women are taking. Now, this mm-hmm. when you read this, it's it's difficult to to read because it's. I mean, it, it just comes off as sheer misogyny. Um, you can think um, of Madame Defarge in Charles Dickens' Tale yeah. of Two Cities. That's what um, came to mind as you were saying that. <laughs> yeah, she's a she's a great example of this. Now, the irony is that. This was a woman who was influencing events. This was a woman who was um, who was a leader uh, in politics. This was a woman who the revolution to whom the revolution had given a way to participate in public life. That doesn't mean that Dickens isn't misogynist. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that this is you know that we want to you know just simply recreate Madame Defarge as as some sort of heroine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is but. Again, every time I read these accounts, I'm struck by, uh, you know, they. it's like they want to tell a story of men and they can't because they're, they're see, what they're seeing is not a story of men. It's a story of women and men um, and whatever they would have liked to have been describing and whatever, you know, disgust that they might see in that, which disgust that we would not find appropriate, Um this is the story that they're seeing. It's one that where women are finding a way to participate in public life, to participate in politics, uh, and often uh, shaping the course of events. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Noah, in keeping with the, the emphasis that you're putting on uh, the role of religion in the revolution, you talked about the civil constitution of the clergy in 1790. And another thing that I, I learned a lot about um, from reading your book that doesn't always get the kind of attention that it does here um, is the the revolt in the Vendée. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about what that was and why it's significant and why it's important to, to the kind of history of the revolution that you want to want to share here in the book. Well, the Vendée is a region in Western France. Uh, there's a great quote I found, which I included in the book. It's the only department that becomes a region, uh, but it's a re- it's an area of Western France that is uh, it's on the Atlantic coast but is south of Brittany um, and it's this is really the one time it comes to the forefront of, of French history uh, is during the Civil War that starts there in 1793 now the Vendée was one of the regions one of many regions where the civil constitution of the clergy had led to a lot of opposition to the revolution the Vendée had been relatively pro-revolution up to that point. And actually, uh, by the time the king is executed, Louis XVI is executed early in 1793, and they kind of fluff that off, but um, but are very concerned from 1790, 1791 on about the reform of the church. And then in as the revolution becomes more radical, uh, and especially in March of 1793, when the revolutionaries declare a, a draft, uh, the Vendée really rises up in opposition to the revolution. And they weren't the only region to do so, uh, but things really, other regions, there was less opposition, less pe- fewer people rising up, or the government's forces were able to clamp down more quickly. But in the Vendée, uh, it, it's an all-out civil war, and you have armies in the tens of thousands marching on each other. Uh, the Vendean rebels, um, t- through a string of early victories, you know, their army gets bigger and bigger. They get more and more weapons as they're able to, um, to defeat the government forces and take over their weapons, including cannons. 
Um, and you have, you know, they take over the city of Angers, they take over the city of Fontenay. Um, at one point, they, they almost take over the city of Nantes, which is, you know, that's one of the great French Revolution what-ifs, you know, what if the Vendéans had taken over Nantes? Because there's a lot of speculation at that point that English, the English would have had a place to land in, mm-hmm. on French soil. And it also is a huge, uh, a civil war like that, uh, not surprisingly, uh, winds up being a huge force for radicalization uh, within uh, pol- politics in Paris. Um, so I wanted to talk about it for those reasons, but it is also very much, well, and I, I should say, it's also something where the gender dynamics were uh, there and discussed uh, from the start. Uh, the the revolutionaries are convinced that the reason the Vendée is uprising is because women have too much power there. Women are leading the men astray. Priests are, priests are leading the women astray. The women in, tra- in turn are leading the men astray. Um, it's a very belittling and gendered interpretation that the revolutionaries have of what's going on in the Vendée, but nevertheless one that's shaping their actions, that's shaping their understanding of events. Uh, but it's also, I mean, it's some of the great drama of the revolution, some of the great characters of the revolution. Uh, you have leaders of the, of the Vendean army who, you know, they'd been sort of uh, mediocre officers in the French Royal Army who'd wandered away um, and wind up all of a sudden leading, you know, these large armies in battle against the government. Uh, they're one of the... Uh, one of them is this guy who's, I think he's 19 when he first becomes a general, um, uh, La Rochelle-Jacqueline. And, you know, he's somebody who, you know, he's a 19-year-old who wants to be famous. He wants to achieve glory. And he, this this is winds up being his chance and, um, you know, leading his people into battle. Um, there is a, another, uh, one of the generals, I mean, the story is that he's a peasant who'd been kneading his bread when other peasants came up to him and said, you know, if we have... 10,000 men ready to march under your command. And uh, you have events like the the Battle of Nantes where the Vendéans, they had the numbers, they had they had most of the elements on their on their um, on their side and it just there were a few things including what seems to have been uh, rivalries between the different Vendéan generals where they just can't pull it off and they just can't get Nantes and, and are defeated there. Um, there's another battle, one of the Vendéans' last victories where the story is that there's um uh, the men start to retreat, um, and the women are there, like, give us your weapons, and, you know, sort of shame the men into going back into battle, where they eventually earn a victory. Uh, and finally, um, one of the last big defeats that the Vendeans have, where they all, um, they outnumber the, uh, the government forces, but uh, have to, but eventually lose and, and, have, and decide to cross the Loire, uh, the Loire River, which is a big river, and it, it's this sort of... Mm-hmm reenactment of the um moses leading the hebrew people across the red sea um and so there's just a huge amount of both uh political stakes historical importance uh but also drama um Mm -hmm. and characters that i really wanted to make sure that this regains the place in the telling of the french revolution that i think it deserves i want to add just one more thing about the vendee which is that you don't have to be a counter-revolutionary to talk about the Vendée. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to achieve. Um, most of the time, there's this... Most of the people who talk about the Vendée are people who are very much critical of the revolution because it was, you know, it's a horrible part of the revolution. I mean, there's more death there than any other part of the revolution that took place in France. But 
this is an important story to be told. It, it, you don't have to. It doesn't mean that you're critical of the rights of man just to, because you want to talk about the Vendée. Uh, it raises important questions and um, and and shouldn't be uh, pushed to the side the way I think it sometimes is. Would you say that 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 has been the result then of of the appearance that yeah anyone emphasizing that story or returning to that story is somehow working against the aims of the revolution? I mean, either at the time or recently in, in re- years following or, and even in more recent historiography? Do you think that's the case? I don't think it's a full answer, but I definitely think it's, it's part of what's going on. Huh. Um, uh, now, historians, uh, less so now, more so in the 19th century, um, and I think more so in France than in the U.S., have to, you know, if you're going to state your position, you you have to state it somewhere along the, the revolutionary spectrum. You could side with Edmund Burke, the great British conservative, and say you're against it from the start. You know, by the mm-hmm. time they're, in, they're, you know, making constitutional monarchy, they're getting things all wrong. You can go where few go, which is to say I, I'm, I'm with the convention through thick and thin. I, I support the terror. I support the, you know, the September massacres, which was a um, bloody um, and useless um, massacring of a bunch of prisoners in September of 1792. Most revolutionary historians are going to be somewhere in between, um, uh, you know, saying, you know, something along the lines of 1789, yes, 1794, not so much. Um, but I don't think you need to let that guide what you talk about as much. I, I, I think the Vendée is a story that it makes people uncomfortable the, the more pro-revolutionary they are, but I don't think that it it has to be pushed off to the side. I mean, it's it's tempting to push it off to the side because it it literally is off to the side. I mean, it's way out in the part of France that you know nobody was talking about before, nobody talks about since. This is the moment in the historical um, spotlight. Um, but uh, I don't think you need to. I, I don't think it gets the credit that the the attention it deserves for the importance it had in the revolution. Um, and it's hard to not see uh, a desire to defend the revolution as being part of that. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about uh, the terror, Noah, and um, the, the place that it has in the book. I mean, it comes towards the end of the book, but just in terms of these issues of religion and, and gender. Um, and also, I guess, connected to that, the whole notion of, you know, I think when people think uh, in the popular imagination um, these days, that when people think of the French Revolution, they think of Marie Antoinette, and they think of revolutionary violence, and especially this period of the terror. Um, and I just wonder how what role violence plays in the book, how you've kind of used used stories that, I mean, it's part of the excitement of the revolution. I think that's why people latch onto it. And, and how you see the terror fitting into the bigger picture of the revolution, um, what you would say to someone who kind of associates the revolution with the terror. Um, how do I want to phrase this. Uh, you're not going to be able to tell the story of the revolution without the terror. Um, I don't tell it as an inevitable result mm-hmm. of what happened. Um, but I do think that you can see some of the dynamics of the early revolution um, play out during the terror itself. Um, and just to be clear, not in ways that were inevitable, but it, you know, the 1789 to 1794, that's five years. 
that's not that long. It's not like you're going to have one generation that was involved in the constitutional monarchy and another generation that was involved in the terror. These are the same people. Uh, For the most part, the same politicians. They get a little bit younger as you go on, but not that much. Um, I should say a little bit younger in terms of year they were born, not in terms of their actual age, because, you know, Robespierre is five years older and whatnot. Um, But you still have this desire um, in, on the part of many to understand events in religious terms. Um, you still have uh, this desire on um, the part of others to uh, abolish any religion. And so you can see this in the, the way things play out between Robespierre and his followers on the one hand and uh, Hébert and his followers on the other. Uh, Hébert, and I say his followers, they're really not his followers. It's, it's a more complicated political movement, Hébertis, but he's their sort of figurehead. And they lead what's called a dechristianization movement, or what we've called since a dechristianization movement, that really attempts to uh, get rid of any sort of Catholicism, any sort of sign of Catholicism, trying to make French uh, a secular state. But um, on the one hand, like nobody really knows what that means. Um, so you have the this is the time when you have the revolutionary calendar, and the revolutionary calendar is a, an attempt to have a truly non-Christian uh, way of reckoning time. But what they what they put in is is a very religious calendar in its own way. It's just not deifying. Um, it, it's deifying the agricultural world, it's deifying the natural mm-hmm. world, but still providing the sort of, it's not a, you know, it, this is not quantitative time. This is still qualitative time. This is still time imbued with meanings. They're just trying to replace the meanings. And so you have that movement on the one hand, and then you have uh, Robespierre, who, I mean, it, one of the key moments during the terror is his uh, Festival of the Supreme Being, which is, you know, it's his, um, what's the term, not, um, his apotheosis, his attempt to, to deify himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't put it like that, but people, critics of his do put it like that at the time. I and mean, there's this quote, this famous quote, which I include, you know, it's not enough for him to be a priest. He has to be God. Um, and very much trying to make a, a civic religion that, um, that would, you know, unite all French people, maybe even unite the world's people in this love of virtue uh, as this way of creating a new world um, that is ready for uh, that is ready for the revolution. Uh, and it's again, I mean, you're not going to be able to do this with the the same people that you know had been there in 1789. Um, and so there is these religious, these conflicting religious messages throughout uh, the terror, con- um, consistent fights over religion throughout the terror, that, that don't unify anybody or anything. Uh, there, you know, there's one part where a lot of the clerics decide to renounce, a lot of the clerics, the former clerics or current clerics who are deputies in the National Assembly, it's called the convention at that point, uh, renounce their faith. And, uh, it doesn't really accomplish anything. It's, you know, this, this moment that, you know, some people are renouncing their faith and people are like, well, you know, you really weren't a very believing cleric in the first place and other people are renouncing their faith and still wind up getting executed later on as part of the terror. Um, and so 
these conflicts around religion, which had been there from 1790, from 1791, uh, they're still finding ways to to play out during the terror, just as there are there are ways to to deify the revolution, to sacralize the revolution. You hear stories about people, um, about children being taught to make the sign of the cross uh, in the name of Marat, the revolutionary who'd been um, mm. who'd been killed in 1793, and, and very much. Uh, treated like a, a saint, like a martyr, um, with processions in, in his honor and his heart being kept as a relic. So Noah, the book ends with the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, and you stop this history of the revolution in 1799. And I want to ask you what that choice reflects. Well, there are a number of good dates for when the French Revolution ends. Uh, 1794 with the fall of Robespierre, I think is in many ways, uh, an excellent choice. You know, you include the, the few months that followed, the sort of cleaning up. Um, 1799, with the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, I think is another good one. Um, 1804, when Napoleon becomes emperor, he becomes that much less of a revolutionary. And then the other common ending point is 1814, 1815, when Napoleon is out. You, you get to have a um, uh, Louis XVI's brothers uh, back on the throne, um, so any of these make rational sense in terms of when the revolu- when you think is the best time to end to declare the revolution over. For what I had to say about the revolution, I didn't think it made much sense to include a lot about uh, Napoleonic France. Um, he figures out a lot of the some of the answers to the problems that had plagued the revolution. Um, he is willing to take a more pragmatic approach towards running the church, which lets him take a more pragmatic approach towards running the country. Uh, so it isn't this, he's not the blind ideologist that sev- that too many of the deputies of the National Assembly were. Um, and so the dynamics that I wanted to talk about during the revolution are no longer relevant. Um, I think Napoleonic France is an is a. I spent a lot of time on it in my first book. Uh, I think it's Napoleonic France as opposed to the Napoleonic Wars uh, is I think an understudied aspect of French history. But it was just a whole new, different story that I didn't see a lot of need to include. Uh, so I didn't want to include that there. Uh, I do wish I'd been a little bit clearer in my thoughts about what I wanted to say in the last chapter. Um, now. Uh, Francois Furet, who is uh, one of the most he's late 20th century uh, historian of the French Revolution and very influential, he's probably the most influential historian of, say, the... He was the most influential historian writing at the time of the Bicentennial. Mm-hmm. And he makes this comment that any historian of the French Revolution has to choose between Michelet and de Tocqueville, between explaining a revolution in terms of outcomes and causes and long-term transformations versus uh, explaining it from within in terms of the events, the characters, the dramas, the motivations of the people who took part in it. And one thing I realized uh, a few months too late to actually make it into the book was that what I have to say about the events from 1789 to 1794 really are um, in Michelet's mode um, and far more far closer to Michelet than I think most other historians writing. But uh, what I have to say about 1794 to 1799, I think really fits with, with the Tocqueville. I, I think this is when you start to be able to understand the long-term effects, the long-term impacts of, that the revolution had. Uh, I think those become clearer during those years uh, when you have a government that's trying to uh, find a way to 
stabilize the revolution, but we're very much not trying to go back to what had existed before. That said, the dynamics that run the what's known as the directory government, the, the government that's going from 1795 to 1799, uh, still wind up being very much played out in an attempt to reshape the church uh, and really hitting themselves, um, hitting their head on a wall in the process. I mean, the, the revolutionary government during the more radical phase of the revolution, they were trying to uh, eliminate the Catholic Church uh, with the help of of the guillotine, with the help of violence, um, in, certainly in 1793-94. And the, to try to do that without that was, you know, goes from, you know, from tragedy to farce in that sense, because they're just, the government's getting nowhere in the process. So the dynamic, the, the dynamics were to quote any number of bad, uh, undergraduate essays, both similar and different. Um, they were, <laughs> they were similar in the sense that people were still concerned about religion and they were still concerned about it in very gendered ways. Um, different in that I think what I wanted, what I have to say about that and should have said more clearly is that, uh, it becomes a story at this at that point, about outcomes of the revolution. And um, I think that somebody reading this, my chapter now, can pick that up. Uh, I wish I'd been a little bit clearer, but I think they'll still be able to pick that up. And what about the longer-term legacies of the revolution, Noah, the contemporary relevance of the revolution? Why do we still need to study the French Revolution? What do you think about those issues, and how do you think this book conveys a sense of ongoing necessity Um, in terms of why we need to keep thinking about the French Revolution now? Well, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm the worst person to ask that because I just find all of history so fascinating. I want to learn about these things, whether they're important or not. I want to, you know, I want to know who did what. I want to know what happened. (laughs) And not just about the French Revolution, but, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, eating my cereal in the morning, I'll be getting a Wikipedia page up about some you know, something about 14th century Byzantium or something like that. (laughs) Um, And and so that said, I will try to answer this in a more, um, in a way that will appeal to those not inclined to study history so much. Uh, (laughs) The revolution shows how people can change the world in which they live. Uh, The revolution shows what sort of trouble people will come into when trying to change the world, um, when you should go fast, when you should go slow, um, I think is a, you know, is a big lesson that this revolution has. And I think that the, um, you can really see the possibilities and the pitfalls. Um, the, the French revolution accomplished, uh, much that put French society onto, uh, a very positive trajectory, moving it towards a republic, moving it towards a more socially equitable society. Um, uh, one of the tragedies of the revolution is that uh, a lot of decisions that make a lot of sense, that made a lot of sense do turn out badly. Uh, again, uh, I don't, you know, when I look at the opposition to, the civil constitution of the clergy, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of me that gets frustrated. You know, this law shouldn't have been that big a deal. This law, you know, one of the things that happens in it, for example, um, there were too many dioceses in France before the revolution. There were something like 130 dioceses. And uh, the government put this down to a much more uh, rational, much more manageable um, uh, 80 or so dioceses. And it makes a lot of sense. 
Um, and big part of the, the bishop's opposition, the upper clergy's opposition, lay in the fact that all of a sudden there's, you know, there's a lot fewer bishops. So there's a lot fewer, uh, you know, if there's fewer dioceses, there's fewer bishops. And bishops don't like the fact that a, a government is putting them out of a job. Um, and so I certainly want to say, you know, tough luck. You, you had an easy job that you got by being born into the aristocracy, and now you're going to have to move on and maybe work for a living. But you know what? That doesn't mean that the revolutionaries were right in insisting on on making sure that this law would be enacted as they saw fit. Uh, because, again, like I said, it wound up it, – it doesn't pass a cost-benefit analysis. What it cost them for the revolution uh, wasn't worth what they could have gotten out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's a more specific lesson, but it, um, I do think there's more general um, general lessons to be learned from it. Now, as far as my take on the revolution, I think that uh, one of the things uh, I talk about this some in the introduction to my book. Uh, one of the specific topics that I think my book lends itself well to a discussion of is uh, what does it mean to talk about religious freedom? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ask. Uh, I, I can't think of a single person I, I could ask who I would say, do you support religious freedom? Or they would say no. But that's that's not enough. Uh, because it, what does religious freedom mean is a big, big, big question. Um, and one of the revolutionaries, uh, one of the answers that the revolutionaries give often during the revolution is that if you have a dominant religion that is allowed to do what it pleases, then you can't really have religious freedom. Mm-hmm. And this is the argument that they give for a lot of their crackdowns on the Catholic Church. And it's um, a surpri- it can be a surprisingly effective argument. And this is, uh, it, it makes some sense. And you know, do you need to have a period of time when there aren't crosses all over the place, where there aren't church bells ringing out prayers? Um, uh, is that necessary in order to have, uh, to let a society evolve that no longer is based in religious culture? Um, and so these are the sort of questions that, um, that I think my, you know, that I try to bring up, that I try to highlight, uh, that I try to have one way of, you know, making it be, uh, give, give students today, readers today, some place where they can, um, where they can see relevance and parallels to their own lives. And specifically with respect to, you know, contemporary France and the legacies of the revolution, I think some observers looking at, some of the crises and tensions around gender equality and religion and sexuality in contemporary France might say republicanism just can't deal with religious and gender difference and differences with respect to sexuality. And that's the revolution's fault, or we can trace that back to the revolution. So what, what would you say to that? Well, I I think that's, it's too traumatic, too, too devastating a truth to, to be willing to accept. Um, so I don't think, I don't think that that's true. I think that there are, I think that there's a way of seeing a manageability of conflict that, that needs to take place. Uh, a republic needs to be a society where conflict is part of what, is part of political life. Uh, and that a consistent way, you know, consistent discussions, struggles over the what it means to be part of the republic, you know, what is acceptable behavior in the republic is going to be a consistent feature of republics. Um, now, this tradition of secularization, um, what's called laicite, 
in France. Uh, I don't see that. I'm not sure when that term comes up, but you certainly can trace the movement back to the French Revolution, um, back to the de-Christianization movement, back to the attacks on the Catholic Church there. Laïcité can play out very differently in today's France. There's something very different about telling, you know, the you know millions and millions you know a majority religion of French Catholics in 1793 that they can't share their crosses. Uh, that's very different from telling uh, a minority religion. It's to, from, it's very different from telling uh, Muslim schoolgirls that they can't wear any sort of headdress in school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are, this is a minority religion. They're being singled out. I mean, even if the law doesn't specifically mention them, everybody knows they're being singled out by that mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. So there is, um, there are going to be conflicts and there are going to be problems. Um, I, I keep thinking about the, the Roman Republic, not that the fifth Republic in France is anything like the Roman Republic, <laughs> but, um, one of the things Machiavelli says about the Roman Republic is that it's so strong because it fought amongst itself. And that it, it had a way of letting people fight amongst th- themselves in ways that, event- that eventually made the republic stronger. Uh, and I think there, there is a lesson there that hopefully, I, I don't think that people are going to stop fighting about religion. I don't think that people are going to stop. I don't think people are going to stop fighting against religion any more than I think people are going to stop believing in religion. And I'm not convinced that there is a better format to do that in other than uh, some sort of republic. So I don't anticipate an imminent end to this sort of conflict, but societies have conflicts and Mm -hmm. and they go on, you know, and you hope that the conflicts resolve themselves in peaceful ways and you hope that they, they don't, that they don't wind up pushing people towards excessive xenophobia and, and you, as individuals, we all have to, take part in political life and civil life in ways that promote the values which we adhere to. So it's, it's on all of us in that sense Mm -hmm. um, to make republics consistent with, with people's ability to, uh, to believe what they believe and uh, to make sure that there are ways for people to practice their faith that are consistent with the freedoms of other people who don't share that faith. Um, and their ability to be part of the same republic. Well, no, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I have one last question for you, which is, what are you working on now? Uh, the next book is actually only one third of it will be on France. It is uh, a study of um, armed citizenries, a study of sort of a deep background to the American Second Amendment um, that will talk about uh, France and the French Revolution and the, uh, the levy on mass, the universal conscription of 1793. But then we'll also talk about the American Revolution and even talk um, a little bit about the English Revolution, but more so about 18th century England. So a way of putting the Second Amendment into a broad Atlantic perspective. Oh, it sounds like another book that would have a really broad readership and I could imagine it being interesting to to lots of different audiences. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and for, for writing the book. Thanks, Roxanne. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.